Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. How are you? Not bad. And what are we talking about today? Today. This was your idea. It was my idea. This was your idea. And when you first said it to me, all you said was, let's do an episode on tea. Yeah, tea. Do you like tea? I do like tea. How do you have your tea? I don't have tea. It depends, depends on how I'm feeling. If it's black tea, uh, I'll always have it with milk, sometimes with sugar. Um, I do enjoy a biscuit, but I'm quite picky about biscuits. If there's cream in the middle, then we're good. Interesting. Um, I don't do milk or sugar. I know. No. I, Why not? Because I'm racist and I don't like anything white. <laughs> I just, I like the flavor of tea and both of the other things take away from the flavor of tea. And also your your family all share this, that same taste, right? Yeah, my parents and and lots of other people in the family do, do similar sort of no milk, no sugar tea. Um, so we are going to think about tea as a marker of British nationhood today. We've uh, done this in passing a little bit when we did... Uh, a two-parter on sport and we spoke about American footballer Alex Morgan and her uh, soccer player footballer and her uh, gesture of protest, was it? Um, Mimicking the drinking of tea and that was connected to uh, a history of uh, counter-colonial American nationalist protest against unfair tax policies, the, the, the protest that is today known as the Boston Tea Party. Um, so we'll, 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 we've done a little bit of that, but we are going to focus more specifically on, um, on the way in which tea today becomes a, a marker, a symbol of, of British nationhood and, and how that works. And the reason I particularly thought of it was um, there's... There's a series of ad- adverts. We'll put the put the photo on Twitter and Instagram so you can you can have a look. There is a series of adverts that have taken various different forms, which are sponsored by the government, by the British government, and they, in in various ways, they're trying to get people to get ready for Brexit. Um, the one that I'm thinking in particular is trying to get. EU citizens who live in Britain to apply for settled status. Settled status is what, at the moment, uh, the term is being used to uh, to promise. We don't yet know to what extent this promise is going to be manifested, as it were, but the, the promise that EU citizens will be able to carry on living in Britain after Brexit, whenever Brexit happens, if they apply for settled status. So this advert... Um, that that I, I I was on a bus in in Edinburgh where where we both live, and uh, I saw the advert uh, on a bus stop, and uh, it's the the caption is you know get ready for Brexit, if you're an EU citizen then you need to apply for settled status don't miss out, and the the picture is a, a sort of abstracted version of two cups. Mugs um, or like mugs. teacups. Um, They're like teacups. M- more like teacups than mugs. 
and there's a sort of string hanging off each cup in the way that you might imagine a tea bag if you drink tea from a tea bag sort of the string that that would be connected to a bag and the the bag that would normally be in the mug seems to be outside the mug and instead of a bag it's a picture of a house now i don't know if that house is meant to be the tea bag or if it is meant to be the label that is attached to the other end of the tea bag yeah it looks like it could be either it could be either it it would make make it more sense to be the label because it's outside the tea yeah. the tea bag but it's in the, the shape mug. of a tea bag it is in the shape of a tea bag yeah it is in the shape of a tea bag and it is the size is bigger than any label would be so it the the the, the logic of the image isn't isn't quite clear but the purpose i think is in other words tea is resurrected as a symbol of british nationhood if you want to be within britain if you want to be within the teacup then you need to get settled status if you don't get settled status then you your life here as represented through the house will be outside the teacup that is britain i think that that's that's the the way the image is supposed to be read um it's a horrific image it's a horrific message uh but it did make me want to think more about how we got to a stage where the the sort of semiotics of the image right the idea that one can look at a at a cup of tea and immediately think of britain and the british nation how did we get to a point where a product that is that has no physical associations with britain at all tea isn't grown in britain tea isn't really processed in britain but tea has come to represent britain in a way that is really rather curious and in terms of sort of ideological work being done is really impressive uh why is it that we are all so familiar with this with the grammar of this image if you like that we see tea and a cup of tea and can immediately think of britain yeah what's also interesting about the the image as well as the linking up of the house because the way that it looks is the lights are kind of on in the house it's a, that's a sort of uh color scheme and uh tea is associated specifically I think with british domesticity um and it, and also british manners and etiquette so there's the kind of the practice of drinking tea on a break or as a as a bit of rest or comfort and that kind of like i'm coming home get the kettle on like you know that like weird british um the first thing you do when somebody comes over is you turn the kettle on to make a cup of tea there's a, a kind of homely aspect a cozy aspect to it what's really fascinating to me is as someone who you know so i was born in britain i left britain when i was 5 and only came back when i was 16 all of the the markers for tea that you've just described in terms of domesticity and hospitality uh tea as as something you offer to a guest when they arrive uh all of that i associate as typically indian yeah i don't think of i i up until i was 16 i never thought of it as typically british yeah 
there was a, a quite a funny moment, sort of cultural encounter moment uh, between Claire, my wife, and my mother. Uh, we were in it. We were visiting my parents in India, and we were drinking tea with biscuits. And Claire was dunking her biscuits in her tea, which, to my mum, is not just a thing that is quote unquote Indian, but a thing that is. Um, I I I don't even know what the best way to describe it would be. It sort of uh, suggests a certain lack of sophistication. Right there's a, there's yeah. a, there's a class element. It it's not what is done in the best of houses, right? You you yeah. are you 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 are marked as a as not urban, as not sophisticated, as as a bit of an out of towner, yeah. maybe a, a a bit of a hick. Yeah. Uh, so for my mum, it was a really funny collision of images because Claire, being white in India, will always have a a, a sense of white privilege. And that white privilege, for my mum, was colliding with this slightly unsophisticated, unfashionable, charming but backward, yeah, sense of tea dunking or biscuit dunking in tea. <laughs> Except for Claire, that was a a very British thing. That's what you do with your with your tea and biscuits. You dunk your biscuits in your tea. Yeah, and people have preferred biscuits specifically because of their dunking capabilities. Like the when so Sainsbury's, one of the grocery stores here, changed the recipe for their basic brand uh, bourbon creams and custard creams, which are chocolate and vanilla flavored sandwich cookies with a little cream in the middle. When they changed the recipe, the biscuits themselves, the crumbly bit, was tougher and harder to break down in the tea. So people were complaining that they were no longer dunkable biscuits. They did not have the proper consistency or texture for dunking. Like the the dunking is key to the consumption of the tea. And remembering back to when I moved back to Britain and first encountered as a, as you know either an adult or soon to be an adult, first encountered this British sense of tea as being British, it was really strange. It was quite ludicrous. The fact that in Britain there is a company that's called Yorkshire Tea <laughs> that talks about the tea being particularly suited to the water of Yorkshire is, on the face of it, ridiculous. And that's what makes it so impressive as a as a sort of discursive phenomenon. Yeah. That it is possible to transcend all material evidence to the contrary, which we all know there is nothing British about tea. Tea grows nowhere in Britain. But the discourse is able to... to erase or elide all of that material evidence and resurrect a cup of tea as perhaps the quintessential symbol of Britain. Yeah. I mean, there's other, there are other food products that are a result of uh, European imperialism and European colonization of most of the world. Coffee, of course, is one of them. Sugar is one of them. Um, but those 
products don't take on a national significance or national symbolism in the way that tea does. The only other kind of connection I could think of was potatoes in Ireland. Potatoes are from South America, ultimately, and were brought by colonizers to Europe and made their way to Ireland. And so the the potato in kind of Irish culture and thinking about Irish food is quite significant. But as a... But as a crop, right, potatoes are now grown in Ireland, whereas tea... And, and have been for some time. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, yeah. four centuries. Yeah. Whereas tea, I think there's maybe like one, I think there's one tea plantation in Britain, I think in Cornwall, um, but it's not a, you know, it's not a major producer. Most of the tea does not come from here. And there isn't a, a kind of culture around local tea. No. <laughs> you know? And there can't be, right, for, for, for yeah. sound geographical reasons. Yeah. Um, so what, what is the process of constructing tea as a British thing? It's really fascinating. Um, I wonder, I mean, how, certainly it's colonial. Certainly the process coincides with colonialism and change in taste, as well as change in, in, taste in a Bourdieuian sense, the the construction of a class identity and the performance of a class identity based on uh, fashion and and taste in food and art and culture. There's also the economics of it. Um, it was very successful as a kind of luxury... Uh, consumable commodity. Um, but that's, not to interrupt, but that's that's fascinating as well, right? That tea, and partly because it is possible to have different types of tea, and by different types of tea, I'm, I'm just considering what my mum would think of as proper tea, right? You might think of as black tea. Yeah. I'm not considering herbal tea. I'm not considering all the other forms of tea that Red is possible. Red tea, white tea. R- Ruibos or green tea. iced tea. Or, uh, none of that. I'm just considering the the the, the sort of hot black tea. Um, within that particular product, there is a whole range of sort of price points, right? So it can at once... Uh, there's a, there's a phrase in Britain. I don't know how familiar this will be to to listeners outside of Britain, but the concept of the builder's tea, yeah, yeah, for example, which is cheap tea that is absolutely not a luxury product. So you have that at one extreme, but then at the other extreme, you can go to particular expensive shops and buy very very expensive forms of tea, whether it's in bags or loose leaf or whatever, and Tea seems to manage, or certainly the narrative of tea, is that within Britain, it's one of the very few consumable products which cuts across class, right? So that the queen drinks tea and the builder drinks tea. Um, And I wonder if that class connection or or cross-class connection is part of what allows tea to become, quote-unquote, British. Is it? I mean, the the process, of course, was a was a money making endeavor, 
by marketing tea differently and across British society during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, the And I'm not familiar with that historical economic process per se. The East India Company, the English East India Company, is synonymous with tea. Yes. Um, interestingly enough, tea was like a third choice product for them. They really wanted to get into the spice trade, but the Dutch East India Company had cornered that market and were doing very well. So the EEIC had to basically think on its feet and figure out what they were going to do. So, but but tea now is synonymous with the East India Company to the point where there's like a revived East India Company label and name that now just sells tea in luxury shops in cities in Britain. Have you been into the... the no. There's one on George Street here in Edinburgh. Yeah, I think it's closed down now. But Did it has, close? Yes. They're... they're there used to be one on George Street in Edinburgh, but I've... I mean, as an economy... I face walking and to an East India Company <laughs> shop, even though it has nothing to do with that East India Company, but... Yeah. Well, it's really yes. fascinating because the, the website at the time had a really interesting kind of uh, response, which was, which was um, uh, essentially a... The name is associated with some problematic points in history. Lessons were learned thinking to the future here's our new economic endeavor and it's really inch, it's it was fascinating the mobilization of that colonial nostalgic discourse is certainly in terms of the imagery used yeah i can imagine it wasn't necessarily a successful venture in the sense that there's lots of lots of delicious tea available on the market it's not like there was a, a demand for east india company specific tea but what's interesting about the product itself is it's like a little bit of a historical accident in many ways, um, that was fortuitous for the East India Company, and then, of course, for Britain. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a weird little product if you think about it. I mean, my someone in my family, I think my stepmom, once described tea as just kind of being like dishwater. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite funny how. Um so my mom will not, she doesn't like anything that interferes with the flavor of tea. So she, yeah. she doesn't like lemon with her tea, for example. Yeah. Uh, and she any kind of herbal tea, she thinks of as interfering with the flavor of tea. Even though it's a different flavor, there is no tea in herbal tea. <laughs> uh, but that's how my mom reads it. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a little bit of... Uh, one of my favorite uh, video games ever, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which is set in Victorian London. And there is a cutscene uh, involving the uh, the chief antagonist, the, the big boss bad guy, uh, who's, a, who's a man called Crawford Starrick. And there is a cutscene when you sort of first get to see him, as it were, the, the, the man you are fighting. Uh, and Crawford Starrick is sort of a a cross between uh, Professor Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes stories and Cecil Rhodes, right? He's a, mm-hmm. he's a cross between an imperial robber baron and a mafia leader, as it were. And uh, the first time you see Crawford Starrick, he's sort of sat in his living room in his house and he's drinking tea. And he has this monologue, which I always use to, to teach uh, 
post-colonial theory and to my to my undergraduates uh and Crawford Starrick talks about sort of this tea that the miracle that is this tea he, he says you know it was grown in India and packed and and sent put on a ship and sent to London and packed unloaded of the ship and taken to the shop and then take it brought to my house and all along the route it was worked on by people who owed their lives their livelihood to me yeah and it's a brilliant sort of minute and a half that encapsulates the both the the sort of central violence that is fundamental to empire and also the the reason why empire exists in the first place you know the idea that uh the the colonized land was always looked at as at once a resource and a marketplace for the imperial power um but i'm i'm particularly interested in that word miracle mm-hmm. uh Crawford Starrick describes tea as this miracle um because there is a sort of equal but different miraculousness in terms of the way in which tea has managed to become british right there there, there is a magic uh which hides the true origins of tea hides the labor that ha- that has gone into making of the tea uh hides the labor that exists where tea is produced where it is processed where it is packaged all of that labor is sort of magically hidden and instead tea is produced as as this british product this british commodity in a way that reminds both of us i think of marx and marx's idea of commodity fetishism which marx also talks about as as a magical process right mm-hmm. ding 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 theoretical concept alert commodity fetish i think we've probably talked about it before we on the have. podcast i'm sure we have um i love it uh, i was talking about it today with some of my students i th- i think it's so neatly conceptualized and it encapsulates the a kind of complex relationship that exists between a commodity, a consumer and a producer and the process by which a commodity moves from one the site of production to the site of consumption and how important that is for capitalism. So do you want to explain a bit bit more about what what Marx means? Yeah. So the idea of commodity fetishism is that uh, a commodity is a particular type of object. So just because something is an is an object or is a thing in the world doesn't mean it's a commodity. A commodity is a is a specific thing um, that is made for money, and it's made by lab- by a certain amount of labor that goes into it, um, and that labor has value. And the then the thing that has that is becoming a commodity moves. It's it's transferred from the place where it's made to a place where it is inserted into a marketplace to be purchased for the purpose of consumption of some variety. And sometimes if it's a food product, it's it's like physically consumed as food, as sustenance, but commodities are also consumed in other ways. They're worn as fashion, they're decorate, used as decorations in houses, um, it's consumed as entertainment, you know, it's all many forms of consumption of commodities. And when we fetishize a commodity or the process of, of fetishization that takes place is when the commodity exists in its own right without indicating, giving any indication or explanation of its source of origin. 
So there's no explanation within the commodity about how it gets made, who makes it, and its process of like coming into being or existing. Like it, it exists in the minds of the consumer as existing a priori. It has always existed in this form. And by disconnecting, creating a complete disconnection between the consumer and the producer of the commodity, you can essentially create labor conditions that are exploitative so that you can you can generate as much profit for either the middleman or the corporation that owns the whole chain. So you could, you know, we could use an example. I don't know if you think of an iPhone, for example. An iPhone is worth what it is because of what it is. Yeah. Right? Not because of the labor that has gone into making it. Yeah. And once capitalism magically separates out those two things, it doesn't matter that the the money that we pay for an iPhone doesn't actually get to the people who make it because for us, the value of the iPhone is not in the labor but in, in but itself. in itself, and it, it it somehow magically comes to uh, symbolize the value, the value adheres to it rather than to the labor that produces it. And something similar is happening with the tea, right? When tea becomes resurrected as British, then all the non-British labor, historically and in the contemporary, that has gone into making and processing and packaging the tea becomes magically invisible it 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 is it it gets erased to replace uh uh to be replaced by a tea which is a commodity in the sense that the the value adheres to it but that value is not just what it's worth economically but also its value in the sense of it being british rather than chinese or indian or whatever yes and value from in a kind of anthropological or sociological sense isn't purely economic in the sense that it's not just the money that we pay for a commodity that is part of its value. It's also its value as uh, a piece of the process by which we create our identities and the way that we, we use commodities to relate to each other and form cultural and social cohesion and connection. So for us, tea is a certainly a very lucrative in monetary in a monetary sense commodity but it is also a commodity that creates a nationalistic value that allows people to construct a shared identity through the consumption of tea itself but also through the consumption of images and stories and narratives around tea that are not related in any way, shape, or form to the actual origins of the tea itself. And and it plugs into a whole host of different imperial commodities which get associated with it. The one I'm thinking most immediately of is sugar. Yep, they right? came together. They, they, and, and they come from perhaps different parts of the empire, but they are both imperial products. And they're both imperial products that have had a similar commodification process gone into it so that together the combination of tea and milk and sugar become British in a way that similarly hides slavery and empire of sugar plantations. Yeah. And it's and sugar sugar's really fascinating because uh unlike tea, sugar's a base ingredient. So what crops up at the same time 
is new forms of baking, new types of recipes and food that you eat with tea. Hence the biscuits and the dipping of the biscuits. And we've spoken of the Great British Bake Off as a, as a marker of Britishness already. I think we've spoken of it more than once yeah. on this on this podcast. And it just points to another set of cultural phenomena which indicates a discursive and material transfer of resources from them from the the colonized country to the to the imperial center as baking and cakes and sugar and tea and the whole thing put together in the form of a tea party let's say yeah. becomes the quintessentially british thing yeah um and it is really fascinating how something that is so clear and obvious in terms of it not being british can still work so powerfully for all of us that we seldom if ever question the origins of tea or the origins of sugar when we think of it in the you know keep calm and carry on and drink a cup of tea narrative of british nationhood yeah um there were we'll we'll uh, put the links in the in the description in the immediate aftermath of brexit one of the uh planks on which the the pro leave side felt that they could rely on a kind of non-eu british centric economic revival was tea quite how tea adds to the british economy is difficult to know mm-hmm. but that was seen as part of britain's contribution to the world um which is bizarre considering that it tea ends up a lot of tea ends up in india via china via essentially the the theft by british colonial officials of tea uh, cuttings and plantations are built in parts of India across northern India in particular and the plantations are built and labor is moved often uh, uh, gendered labor is moved up to the plantations and isn't compensated it is slave labor and that is that is the history of tea and plantations now are still a lot of tea plantations are characterized by very terrible labor practices and labor practices that look like indentured labor or slave labor and the story of tea is essentially one of colonial wheeling and dealing the way that it makes its way from china to india to europe and also to you know to the colonies in north america in australia new zealand do, do you want to say a bit more about the North American connection and and what both historically and and through your lived experience what what are the various meanings tea might have in North America? Yeah, I mean you you can't really get really good black tea in North America because people some people drink it, but it's it's not quite as popular. But the the version of tea that's very popular in North America is herbal tea. So versions of herbal tea are extremely popular. Uh, everybody likes matcha tea right now, right? Um, and tea has a more kind of symbolic significance in, in American, the, the origin myth of America, the United States, which is, of course, the Boston Tea Party. 
uh, the, the, I mean, it, it exists in various guises now. We have a little uh, treat ornament from Boston that my partner Tom brought home from a trip to Boston of the Boston Tea Party, this little depiction of uh, uh, guerrilla colonists dressed up uh, uh, very racistly as Native Americans, right? And they sneak aboard a ship and they drop a bunch of tea in the Boston Harbor in the 18th century. Um, and, and why do they do that? And they do that in protest of the British government, which they were characterizing as um, oppressive for various reasons. Partly the British government was, uh, and the monarchy at the time, was uh, very poor, uh, cash poor, I should say. <laughs> Not asset poor. Uh, but they're cash poor and uh, they're trying to raise money, so they decide to raise increased taxes in the colonies. Not just what becomes the United States in North America, but they've increased taxes uh, across the empire. Um, by then, the settler colonists in the 13 colonies were quite powerful. Certainly regionally, they were expanding uh, a white settler uh, vision across the colonies, and they were also participating uh, in a very lucrative slave trade as well. And they believed that they had, they were just as British as the British government, but that they were being discriminated against because they lived in the colonies. And so uh, originally they were trying to become more, they were trying to prove their rights as British citizens and achieve representation in the government. When it became clear that that was not going to be a possibility, they decided that they could do this colonialism on their own. They didn't need the assistance of the British crown and British parliament that they would do it themselves. And so they started protesting the products that the government was taxing and tea was a key product. Um, and there's all these kind of stories in, in, uh, American school textbooks about how the the governors at the governor's mansions who were kind of um, they were British and they were sent out onto location to to be a governor for a while and then they'd go back right as a posting so we're seen as being other they weren't true colonists uh, they were kind of outside British uh, um, British puppet governors, that kind of thing. They would have the nicest tea um, and they kind of cultivated a sort of a, an old school metropolitan uh, back home in Britain, we drink tea like this uh, type of practice. And the colonists led by guys like Sam Adams are staging stage protests like the Boston Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party takes on a significance. It certainly wasn't the only, the only protest, but it does take on a, a significance. And I think partly because tea was so valuable that tea was hugely valuable so it was a it had a real economic effect on the british tea traders that had brought the tea in incidentally when i was at the twinings shop in london a couple of years ago twinings has a shop on their original premises which is fascinating that they have kept preserved uh, and they have on the walls they have portraits of all of the governors of the twinings tea outfit and I asked, I said, which one, which one was head of, at the time of the Boston Tea Party? And she said, actually, fun fact, the Twinings tea had been removed from the ships first, so weren't actually on the ships when the tea was dumped into the harbor. So Twinings tea was never actually included because it had already been shipped to the governor's because it was considered the finest tea. So it gets shipped to the governor's houses immediately. And the rest of the tea, which was for everybody else, gets dumped in the harbor. 
and this is a kind of T as abstract, as abstract kind of representation of uh, British taste being forced on and British product at British set prices being forced on the colonists. And the set prices designed to stimulate the British economy as opposed to the growing American economy. Yeah, and and the American colonists are saying, we're not seeing the benefit of this. You are actually exploiting our economy and we've given you all of this, which, you know, is a standard, that's what colonialism is That was the point. That was always going to be the point. So the, the, the settler colonial understanding that we are British and we, you know, we should get the benefit of the of the taxes that you are levying on us is a fundamentally misunderstanding of the relationship between the 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 imperial center back home and the settler colonial right that that, that relationship is always always more tenuous than that yeah um so the 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 british government tax policy in terms of tea in north america was determined to a much greater extent by the the state of state of the british british economy back home and british rule in india british the the trade deficit to do with china with opium mm-hmm. and all of those things much more so than any sense of the welfare of the 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 new fledgling fledgling uh, colony in in what is today today the united states um what so you you've you said a little bit about uh the role of the Boston Tea Party as a moment in terms of American nation building right the the United States that is yet to come as it were and and you you spoke about it in in school books and so on so you know America's myth of of a nation sort of sense of itself as a nation is there a connection between the the collective national memory of the Boston Tea Party and black tea drinking habits in the contemporary would you say or is that connection made much more tenuous um i think it's pretty tenuous um i think part of it is because of the 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 kind of practicalities of settler colonialism and because the uh, what becomes to be known as the Americas, the, the large land masses that come to be known as the Americas, have uh, other forms of like caffeinated food products. Uh, the the drink of choice in the United States is kind of there's herbal tea, there's coffee, there's chocolate, but they remain luxury goods until quite recently. So, I mean. F- Fancy coffee, like artisan luxury coffee, wasn't really a thing until Starbucks came about. Starbucks and Pete's in like the 80s and 90s. Um, there was kind of instant coffee, but it, it is, it's kind of coffee and chocolate that are the more, that are seen to be the more kind of American beverages, diner coffee, right? Um, Folgers, Folgers in a can, coffee. Uh, instant hot chocolate and yeah like hot fruit or hot herbal type beverages um i don't know the history of the of food as well in the u.s but there's a black tea doesn't come from the americas 
So, and, and they, is it is it then seen as British? Like I'm going back to the, yeah. the Alex Morgan protest that we started by talking. Yeah. So yeah. we do have. So we have um, uh, like iced tea. So black tea in its most common variation, I think, is is iced tea and sweet tea in the South, um, which is. And I don't know the origins. I associate it with um, the South generally, but I think there was an element of um, of class to do with the drinking of cold, cold black tea. Uh, but it is like as the as the the tea time in the in the little teacup with the saucer and the the various like sweet bread products that you eat with tea. That is extremely British. Yeah. Um, like when the when Prince William got married, uh, there was really funny kind of local news reporting and um, American news reporting that kind of was celebrating via very British tea party, um, but like oddly enough, like not not doing it right. So like the crumpet party, of course, British people don't really eat crumpets with tea much like that's not really a thing but there was a crumpet party with tea on like I think it was Good Morning America I want to say or maybe The View um and so there is an association of tea but specifically with the with aristocracy so there's a, the, the class element comes back in like yeah tea. so the class elements yes. there builders tea yeah uh, and the concept so uh, one of my one of my favorite kind of moments of cultural encounter that I've had here was discovering that there's a there's a core group of British people, like a, a set of British people that drink tea with fish and chips. Who knew? I mean, it's called fish tea, right? It it's is, the weirdest. It's super weird. Also, the the kind of northern use of the word tea to describe dinner, using the word tea to talk about like dinner or like the aristocratic term supper. It's a really strange thing. Tea is a beverage. Tea is not. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it's it's it points to exactly how fully tea has been nationalized in the sense that it is now it has been made British. That it refers not just to the specific drink, but to distinct. Uh, food and drink consuming habits. Yeah. So you have tea as a meal. You know, um, uh, the the evening meal is called tea. Um, what? It's just re- that was one thing that was really bizarre. And uh, just imagining tea with fish and chips. Like, can you like? Not for you. <laughs> just really incongruous. But but that is part of it. Where tea in the U.S. is is really, and you can have high tea, right? So in the U.S. you you do go to places to have high tea and it looks a lot like a British high tea that's normally in fancy hotels. So the Plaza Hotel, uh, the, um, oh my gosh, you can do it in, uh, in San Francisco at various places. There's specific like tea houses, but it is a, it's a performance. Like it's a, and it is an upper class, like importance of being earnest Oscar Wilde type tea. Yes. Performing a, a a a kind of mimicry of a yes. of a, of another nation. 
Yeah, but specifically, I think the where the colonialism comes into play is that oppressive upper class. Yes, because yes. Americans don't think of don't think don't think of the United States as having that class. No. There's no one in the U.S. that is of that class. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think that's probably a good good enough point to stop. Um, Yay, T. Uh, yeah, I think I think you can all go away and have your tea now. <laughs> however you decide to have it. Uh, Let us know what you think and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well